Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. If you've been following this podcast, you know that we've had several conversations where the conclusion has been that Pakistan needs to structurally change its economy and shift away from import-led consumption spending and more towards export-led growth, which is essential not only for generating well-paying jobs, but it is also very important for making sure that the consistent balance of payments and external sector crises we see in Pakistan go away. Um, we've had Gonzalo Varela, who's joining us here again today on the podcast before. If you haven't seen that episode, I highly recommend that to understand why it is important to look at trade and exports from a more holistic perspective and what can Pakistan do to take advantage of that. And most recently, Gonzalo and Alan Mulabdej, who's joining us for this podcast as well, they're both economists at the World Bank. They've done a fascinating piece of research that basically shows that Pakistan's export potential is really high. The country currently exports about 20 or so billion dollars of goods a, a year. And in fact, Gonzalo and Allen's research shows that it is closer to 60 billion, six zero, which means there's an opportunity to grow the exports of the country by about three times. Um, so first of all, Allen and Gonzalo, thank you for taking out the time and joining us here today on Pakistanomy. And I'll start with you, Allen, as the first question, in terms of you conclude this finding that you know it's about $61 billion in exports is the total potential for Pakistan. Tell us and tell the listeners about how uh, did you reach these conclusions and what went in in terms of calculating this really high potential? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the introduction and uh, thank you for having me here. So I will start with uh, describing what the first challenge was for us really was to determine what what is the potential, what is the uh, what is the level of trade we should be expecting from Pakistan and all the other countries in the world. So in order to do that, we needed a sort of benchmark for trade, existing trade. So what we did, we analyzed uh, bilateral trade flows. So we have information for trade among all the countries in the world. And uh, we estimate the, the so-called gravity model of international trade, one of the most uh, most successful empirical models in, uh, in international economics. So I'll just give you a bit the flavor of this model and the intuition behind it before telling you how we actually calculated the $61 billion. So in its simplest form, this model really states that everything else equal, the larger two countries are, the more we should, we should, uh, the more they should uh, be trading among each other. So to give you an example, when we look at Pakistan exports, we would expect Pakistan exporting much more to China than to Afghanistan. Second, trade is inversely proportional to distance. So we know that uh, distance is correlated with the uh, trade costs. So it's much more expensive to, to ship goods which are to destinations which are far away than uh, nearby countries. So uh, again, uh, the, closer, the closer the countries are, uh, the less the trade costs are. So what we do, taking this uh, simple model, we enrich it with the other information about both trade costs and also uh, country characteristics. So in terms of trade costs, what we do in addition to the geographical variables, distance, uh, border, and so on, we also include the information about, about historical ties among country pairs, so just to give you an example, uh, we know that countries that speak the same language 
they trade more intensively. So it's much easier for Pakistani exporters to go to a country that speaks the same, uh, same language and establish a business relationship. In addition to that, uh, we also include information about what we call man-made uh, trade barriers. And these are things related to trade policy. So here you have tariffs, which are basically taxes on imports, which, uh, which increase the, the price of imported goods vis-a-vis uh, -vis domestically produced goods. And we also include information about the presence of trade agreements, which, uh, which tend to reduce these costs. So once we have this, uh, all this information, what we do, we predict, we estimate this gravity model, this equation, and using, uh, using this model, we predict trade flows based on the country characteristics we have. And this tells us how much a country with the same characteristics as Pakistan, same geography, same level of development, same factor endowments, so a sort of contrafactual of Pakistan is expected to trade with each country in the world. And the last step, which is, uh, uh, which is what you mentioned, the last step is comparing these predicted flows to the observed ones. And once we take the difference between these two, we see that uh, Pakistan is exporting $61 billion less than what the model predicts. That's fascinating. So essentially, um, you know, there is this export-led dream idealistic Pakistan that you've sort of formed in the model that says, you know what, like if Pakistan were all the same things and certain things will change, and we can talk about those in a bit, that what needs to change to come closer to that ideal Pakistan model, that there are billions of dollars that are being left on the table in terms of international trade. And one of the things that, you know, stood out to me in the research that you guys did was that it's not that Pakistan has to now go, as you said, you know, if you have speak the same language, in this case, it would be Urdu or English, because English is the commercial language in Pakistan, you can trade a lot more with those countries versus, let's say, you know, a Chile, where it is far away, and it speaks Spanish, so it's very hard to build that relationship. And what stood out to me in your model was that it's not like Pakistan has to go find the Chiles of the world, that it's actually familiar locations that Pakistan already has a trade relationship with, where it is leaving money on the table. Um, so first, correct me if I'm wrong in understanding that part of the research correctly. Um, and then secondly, help me understand, like, if that is the case, then how does uh, Pakistan realize and fulfill that potential, given that, you know, to me, it seems like a no-brainer. Like, if you're already trading with them, you should meet your full potential. How does that work? Yeah, so... Yeah, what the data tells us is that actually in terms of potential, what we estimate is that most of these missing exports is with the, so ranking them with China, India, the US and Japan. So these are the top destinations. And as you said, these are familiar, some of these are familiar uh, export destinations or, or countries to which Pakistani exporters are already exporting a lot. Just to give you an example, in 2019, 20% of the exports were actually absorbed by uh, the United States and China. Uh, so what we find, however, is that, uh, is that uh, other countries are exporting, similar to, to Pakistan, they are exporting much more to these destinations. So this is where this, uh, this uh, missing exports comes in. So the model tell us for in, tells us, for instance, that uh, Pakistan has $13 billion of missing exports with, uh, with China, and this compares to $2 billion of 
actual realized exports to China. And then we have, uh, it's followed by the US, $6 billion of missing exports, vis-a-vis uh, -vis $4 billion that are currently exported. So on the one hand, it is right to think that these are, might be easier or easy to expand in these locations or in these countries where Pakistani exporters already have some business relationships in place and they have knowledge about the customers, about the markets, export procedures, and so on. So we know that might be helpful and might be easier for to export to those locations than to completely new, new markets, the Chile in the world. Uh, in fact, from the literature, what we know is that the highest costs that uh, exporters incur are actually the surge costs of finding new clients and stepping up operations in a country. But on the other hand, uh, it seems as if something is holding back Pakistani exporters. So this could be that uh, Pakistan is not exporting the, the right product mix. So the products which are exporting are not the ones that the consumers are looking for. Or this could be also the result that certain industries are exporting more. Uh, and this could be the results of a system of incentives, which is distorted. So this you know, changes in, uh, in this respect might be much more difficult to implement because you know, they might require big policy reforms, which are difficult to carry out. So Gonzalo. let me bring you in here, Gonzalo. Um, again, like uh, Alan, thank you for that. And the numbers you read out, basically, if I add 13 billion and 6 billion, that's essentially doubling Pakistan's current exports. Like, so you're, you're looking at a lot of significant money on the table with significant historical trade partners, strategic partners. So it's not like, you know, it's not a chunk change and it's markets that Pakistanis are familiar with. So Gonzalo, why is this the case, why is so much money being left on the table and how do we go about changing the situation? Right, so th that's, that's, the, that's a crucial question, right? So then we started thinking, what is the, the, the most effective way to, to strategize around this and, and how is it that, that this untapped export potential can actually be, be realized? And then here we are thinking a, a, around three uh, main lines and, and the Alan just mentioned or hinted uh, towards them. So one is, is, is one he mentioned at the very beginning when he was explaining how is it that we reach these numbers and has to do with uh, agreements that help reduce trade costs. The second has to do with the incentive scheme or the, the, the system of incentives that firms have to, to choose where they're going to be selling. The third one may have to do with the product mix, as Alan was mentioning, uh, whether that product mix uh, fits the consumption patterns of the of the destinations in which there is high potential. So let me start. Uh, let me start with with agreements, right? So, uh, what countries across the world have done to to reduce trade costs and increase their shipments uh, to specific destinations is to sign preferential trade agreements. The the most vanilla, so to speak, uh, type of preferential trade agreement is that type that focuses on the reductions of tariffs. Uh, so that goods can cross borders without paying these border taxes. Um, now, being cognizant of the, of the reality that global value chains as a platform for integration has, has brought to the world, countries have actually moved a little bit beyond this type of vanilla type of agreements and moved into deeper forms of integration, 
uh, with agreements that go beyond reductions of tariffs and go into, for example, negotiating bilateral investment treaties, negotiating uh, agreements on competition or intellectual property rights or mutual recognition of, of standards, right? Let me give you an example from my own country, Uruguay. Uh, in, in the early 2000s, uh, a Finnish cellulose uh, plant company was, was interested in selling shop in Uruguay. And that interest, basically what it did was it triggered a bilateral investment treaty between Uruguay and Finland. Uh, and that bilateral investment treaty actually helped that investment to materialize, but not only helped that investment to materialize, Today, Uruguay has three uh, cellulose plants from Finland in uh, Uruguay. Today, uh, cellulose paste became the largest export product out of, of Uruguay, and it triggered basically a, a chain reaction, a positive chain reaction. Uh, and so the whole value chain was stimulated. So today in Uruguay, uh, we have large exports of cellulose, but we also have large export of transport services. We have research and development around forestry, from forestry to the cellulose uh, production. And all of this was facilitated not by, by reducing tariffs between Finland and Uruguay, but by also thinking about uh, what are the barriers to investment that are preventing uh, that, that trade to, to actually flourish. So basically achieving the potential is not just uh, reducing the traditional trade costs, but it's moving into facilitating integration in other dimensions, investment, standards, uh, property rights. So in let practice... Me, let, yes. let me pause you here um, and, and sort of explain and correct me if I get this wrong, but I'll use like typical Pakistani terms, right? So if let's say I am your friend and I have a friendship with you that relies on us meeting for tea every once in a while, you're saying that that type of vanilla relationship is not enough. It has to look at how do we become friends and become closer like family and maybe look at marriage and look at investing together and having a conglomerate essentially in a very Pakistani sense. And so long as you don't do that, you're leaving a lot of things on the table, right? That, that is true. That is true because basically there are many things that are complementary to trade that end up facilitating trade, right? So if, if you want to trade more, you need to also, you know, give access to more investment because FDI plays a crucial role in these days in, in facilitating trade flows. So if, if, if Pakistan wants to uh, trade more with China, perhaps it needs to ensure that Chinese firms can come into Pakistan, set shop and have easy access to infrastructure, uh, but also have assurances that their assets are going to be protected. Right, so they, that that they get national treatment, what is uh, typically uh, mentioned. So, so that that was a a good way of, of bringing home uh, your your example. So, all complementary services to trade uh, that matter that matter too. Uh, but but let me go a little bit more into into what it means for Pakistan. So, for Pakistan, it means that. Uh, Pakistan today faces a lot of trade preferences from, from developed countries through the, the generalized system of preferences is a typical example, right? But what the generalized pre system of preferences does is it gives uh, access to duty-free duty free access in, 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 many, in many sectors. Now, Pakistan needs to, to go further than that and move to a deeper type of formal of integration with these economies if it wants to fully tap 
into the, uh, into the opportunities and join uh, the, the right type of value chains that will help uh, exporting more. It will also need to, to up its game in terms of quality infrastructure and supporting firms to be able to uh, certify their products and reach the higher end type of market. So let me give you a, a, a very uh, relevant and recent example. So Pakistan signed a free trade agreement with China about you know, 10 years ago, then it was renegotiated, there was a second phase, but it went further. So, uh, and the, the way it went further is it negotiated actively the access for its beef to uh, the Chinese market. And very recently uh, there were newspaper articles uh, about two weeks ago on how China has now approved exports uh, out of certain places of Pakistan of beef, right? So the, the, the reduction in tariffs for many goods is not enough uh, for exporters to be able to, to penetrate the market because they will need certifications, they will need compliance with standards. And for that, you need an active work day after day that goes just beyond the, 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 the reduction of the tariffs. So that is, that is one area. Uh, agreements that reduce trade costs in a way that is more holistic than just reducing tariffs. The other, the other thing that uh, when, when we started looking at, at, at these results on, on export potentials that we looked at was let's, let's look at the system of incentives that are in place in, in Pakistan. So Pakistan is, is quite active in providing uh, support to exporters in different ways. Uh, I'm going to, to mention uh, one, uh, one trade enhancement scheme that is a duty drawbacks. There are, uh, it's basically one scheme, but it has two different names, the, the duty drawback of taxes that focuses on textiles and the drawback of local taxes and levies, the VLTL that focus on, on non-textile exports, but all together they, they form one, let's say export promotion scheme. So these export promotion schemes gives, give a rebate to exporters of specific products and they give a, a, a premium, an additional rebate of two percentage points to exporters that in addition to exporting that, that product, they reach specific destinations. So there is a targeting of destinations for which the government of Pakistan considers that it's relevant to reach uh, and gives an additional two percentage points of rebate based on, on the free on board export values. Now, what we did was we looked at these destinations and we saw whether these destinations that were chosen uh, for, for this additional rebate, whether these, uh, these destinations actually were also destinations of high potential. And we looked at, at two dimensions. So one was this high potential uh, dimension uh, of which you know, Alan was, was mentioning before. The other one was the dynamism of these destinations. So if the system in place is favoring export growth, one would expect that the destinations chosen are those that have high potential, but also that are destinations that show dynamism. So those are the ones that you would want to, to target if, uh, if, if what you want to do is, is, is boost export growth. Now, what we saw is that the current targeting actually focuses on low potential destinations. So additional funds are given to those exporters that reach the Chiles of the world, to use your example, uh, but not so much the Chinas of the world. So when, when, when you map this and we put this in a, in a chart that then we can actually perhaps attach it to the, to the link to this podcast, what you see is that the chosen destinations are destinations of low potential instead of destinations of high potential. So this type of 
simple analysis can help guide some, some export promotion decisions. I can mention two. One is focus your export diplomacy on high potential destinations. And B is focus your limited public funds to help firms reach those destinations that also have high potential and high dynamism. On this, I'm going to, to, to mention something that is good news, a piece of good news. A piece of good news is that uh, the Ministry of Commerce is actively discussing the possibility of a free trade agreement or a preferential trade agreement with Uzbekistan. And Uzbekistan happens to be a high potential, high dynamism destination. The whole, in fact, the whole of Central Asia is, according to our analysis, a, an area of high untapped potential for Pakistan. So it's very good news that actually Pakistan is discussing uh, that possibility. And let me mention the third, uh, the third element that, that also Alan mentioned it uh, or hinted towards it, that is the, the type of product mix may be something uh, that is deterring uh, increases in shipment. So you may have, so Pakistani exporters may have high potential of selling to the United States, but it may be that the type of product they're selling to the United States has sort of a ceiling, right? And if they want to, to, to reach or to achieve that and tap potential, they need to move into a different product mix. And this, uh, when, when we started thinking about this, the, the first thing we thought about is, you know, if you think about textiles and apparel, so Pakistan uh, relies a lot on natural fibers for its textiles and apparel. Uh, but in, in the US and in Europe, a lot of the demand for apparel is demand for apparel that uses synthetic fibers. So if what you want is to help exporters reach that potential, one of the things that you need to do is you need to give them access to all inputs available at work prices so that they can uh, you know, alter their product mix so that they can reach their uh, consumers better. So in this way, for example, high import duties on synthetic fibers that Pakistan, something that Pakistan has is basically a, a policy that, that shoots itself in the foot, right? Because it is preventing exporters from exploiting uh, their potential uh, internationally. I think as, as my friend says, there's only so many towels and bedsheets you can send, sell to Americans. At some point, you got to start selling athletic gear and, you know, quick wicking t-shirts and trousers and things like that. And those are, you're right, they're not made out of cotton, they're made out of synthetic fiber. So, you know, that's where they lose out as manufacturers, which is a shame because it's the same retailers that sell those things, right? So it's not like an entirely new relationship you have to build. It's basically a new relationship with a new merchant at the same retailer who can be, you know, convinced that you're a good supplier by their own teammates and colleagues who work and procure these things from you. Um, let me ask you then this, like from your perspective, Alan, maybe start with you on this one. Gonzalo mentioned some of the things, Central Asia has high potential, high dynamism, there are US and China obviously stands out. And these are again, countries where diplomatically and trade culturally, there are ties with and strategic ties. Um, what are things that you would like the Pakistani government to do in light of this research, in light of your findings, in terms of fulfilling this potential in the near term? Like, obviously, they're doing certain things, but yeah, Gonzalo, go ahead. Let me, let me, uh, let me take that, uh, because I've, I've been working on these issues for, for, for quite some time. Uh, but before I go, I go into, into what, what do I think the Pakistani government could, could start doing, let me emphasize 
uh, one thing about the the what, what it means to fail to fulfill the the potential, right? Because we we talk about numbers here, and and the and Alan mentioned sixty one billion of untapped uh, exports, right? But this sixty one million of untapped exports may sound like a you know like a just a number for many people, right? But basically, the, the opportunity cost of not fulfilling this potential is huge in terms of jobs. And, and I want to make this point before I get into how, how you do fulfill the potential. But uh, we, we, what we did was we looked at the, at the average elasticity of jobs with respect to exports in comparable countries, right? Countries that have a similar level of development, that have similar factor endowments that are labor intensive also. Uh, that have similar export structures. And so we did a back of the envelope calculation. Say, what if, if, you, if you actually uh, tap into the potential, what does that mean in terms of jobs? And it means 893,000 uh, jobs created in the export sector, about 150,000 in agriculture, and the rest about 742,000 in manufacturing. Not all of these jobs are going to be fresh new jobs. Some are going to be labor that moves out of domestic oriented industries into the export sector. But without doubt, what this means is an increase in productivity in the economy because export oriented sectors are more productive. We know we have evidence across the world, but for Pakistan also, that exporting firms are about 20% more productive than comparable but non-exporting firms. So if these exporting firms manage to create this type of number of jobs, what you're going to see is more jobs for people, better salaries for people. You're also going to see increases in aggregate productivity uh, in the economy. Now, how the, 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 you know, what, what has happened that has prevented this, this potential uh, from being fulfilled? Of course, this is, a, this is a difficult question to answer. We, we don't have all the answers, but we have some hypotheses uh, in, in this area. And I will mention four things. The first thing is, is my, my sort of perennial uh, concern about trade policy in Pakistan, that is the, the anti-export bias of trade policy. And when I say the anti-export bias of trade policy, I mean the fact that import duties are very high, but they're not only high, they also have a structure that is called cascading by which you have low, relatively lower tariffs on raw materials and intermediates and much higher tariffs on the final good. The idea of this is to stimulate domestic production. You give protection so that you produce for the domestic economy. You protect domestic producers from import competition. But the intended consequence of this is that you generate a such an amount of, of, of effective protection to produce domestically that firms have much higher profits if they sell domestically than if they export. And so they end up preferring to sell domestically because in, in export markets, they do not face the protection that cascading gives them inside the Pakistani market. Uh, the typical example I use is, is, is bicycles. There's a, a tariff on bicycle 52%. Which means that if a bicycle internationally costs 100, in Pakistan you can sell it at 152, and the producer can pocket the 52 extra dollars. If it sells internationally, if it's to export the bike, it's going to get 100. So it will always prefer to sell domestically rather than exporting. This is something that conceptually makes sense, but it's also something that we see in the data. So the, the, the anti export bias of trade policy has led. Pakistan to become more of an inward-looking 
uh, economy with its share of exports and GDP falling from about 16% the beginning of the century to uh, being below 11% uh, now. The second thing that has also played a role, and this is a little bit more subtle, but it's quite important, and, and I think it's, it's relevant in this context that we are seeing currently, uh, is the issue of trade policy uncertainty. There's a, a very talented young economist, a Pakistani, Shafat uh, Yarhan, that looked at how export bans affect export performance beyond the point in which the export ban is lifted. So after the export ban is lifted. So even after the export ban is lifted, export bans help, uh, actually help not the opposite. They hurt uh, export performance. And part of the story he tells is that exporters from countries that tend to use export bans quite a lot tend to be at a disadvantage because they face a credibility issue with their global buyers. So global buyers see different Supply different suppliers from different countries, and if you are a supplier from a country that uses export bans uh, quite actively, they think that there's more uncertainty with respect to the capacity of the exporter to fulfill the, the order, because at some point there may be an export ban. This could be extended, and this story of, of, of the ban can be extended if you think about also import bans that apply to key inputs that you may need to fulfill your order. So if you have policy barriers that are introduced and then lifted and then reintroduced and then lifted, that creates uncertainty that places your suppliers, your exporters at a disadvantage. This is something that also has been prevalent in, in Pakistan. And, and I would argue like even beyond what you just described, like the history of Pakistani finance ministers forcing the currency to stay overvalued is in a way that policy uncertainty, right? You may place an order and the new finance minister decides he wants to keep the rupee at 120 per, for the dollar when its real value is 140. And all of a sudden the cost of production goes haywire, it's overvalued, blah, blah, blah. And all of that uncertainty makes a, a international buyer question whether you will be able to meet the demand at the agreed upon price. That, that's spot on, exactly. So in fact, the, the two other points I, I was going to make, one was related to uh, the importance of having an exchange rate that is market-based. Uh, and so here, in, what, what has happened in the recent years is that uh, the exchange rate was, was relatively appreciated with respect to, to, to fundamentals. Uh, and this makes exporting more difficult, makes exporting uh, more, more expensive, so it takes you know, it, it requires much more productivity uh, from the from the side of of, of exporters, and so a, a smaller portion of firms manage to export with a more appreciated uh, exchange rate. And the interesting fact here is that because the exchange rate was kept at an appreciated level for 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 a relatively long period, even when the rupee depreciated, these exporters couldn't. Uh, ramp up production immediately because their capacity was eroded by by the by a long period of of, uh, of, of appreciation. So this is something that we also documented in a in, a, in another piece of work uh, that that in which we looked at how uh, the, the exports respond asymmetrically to depreciations and, and appreciations. And in part is because if your appreciation lasts long, then it's difficult to. Uh, be back on your feet and be able to export and regain those clients that you lost. 
And the, the, the last element I want to mention has to do with FDI, because as I mentioned before, FDI and trade are, are, are big complements, particularly in a world of global value chains. And, and Pakistan has not done very well at attracting foreign direct investment. Uh, for a long period, it was uh, for, for security concerns, it was difficult to attract FDI in Pakistan. Today, the security concerns are to a large extent uh, not there anymore, but still, uh, FDI is not coming in the in the in the numbers that one would expect to 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 give a, a, an export boost uh, to the economy. So an active uh, promotion policy uh, or for FDI would be would be crucial. That, that's fascinating. So I think, and I think those are great sort of recommendations, right? And I think um, some of that we're seeing action, particularly you mentioned the, the outreach to Central Asia and the trade agreements there, etc. One hopes that that momentum continues because I, I agree with you. I think the, the big story here is jobs, well-paying jobs. And I will extend your argument that it's not just well-paying jobs that are productive and the productivity goes up, but by creating that sort of jobs, you sort of also deal with the savings investment gap that Pakistan has had for years and years and years, which means there are not enough domestic savings to fund the investments that the country needs to again, grow further. And it, so long as you don't create the jobs that allow people to save more, um, this will continue to be a problem and you will need foreign loans or foreign bailouts and what have you to sustain just where you are standing at this point in time. Um, Alan, I don't know if you wanted to add anything here, but this has been a fascinating conversation in terms of you know, what the research shows and what you guys have done. Um, and if you have something to chime in, please go ahead. Otherwise, I want to conclude and ask my last question on this and, and sort of wrap things up. You know, I think Gonzalo actually gave a very detailed picture of, of, of all the issues or the main issues that, that Pakistan is facing and Pakistan exporters are facing. So nothing to add there. And Gonzalo, I remember your bicycle analogy from the last time we spoke. So that was a really good explanation. I got a few comments from people saying, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. I think typically Pakistanis think of that intuitively, at least from the middle and upper class in the case of automobiles in the country, where you have Toyota and Honda continuing to charge crazy, crazy prices when the same car can be bought for cheaper outside. Um, before I let you guys go, and maybe start with you, Alan, and then get your input on this, um, Gonzalo, is what are two or three books that you would recommend people pick up and read? It doesn't have to be on international trade, but if it is on that subject, well and good, but people frequently ask that, so would love your book recommendations as well. Yeah, so, so yeah, the first book, my first pick is the, and I think Gonzalo already might have picked this one, but, you know, I just uh, reinforce the is the great convergence by Richard Baldwin, and of course this book has influenced me quite a bit, given that he was my uh, PhD supervisor uh, in Geneva. So it's a book about globalization, different waves of globalization. So anyone who's interested in uh, globalization should should read it. Uh, basically, the idea is that early on globalization and trade uh, globalization was mostly driven by uh, reduction in transport costs. So it was about movements of goods across countries. And in the latest phases or the, the current globalization, what we observe is that knowledge and technology is moving. And uh, so that's what is driving, uh, driving the, the globalization, the current one. And uh, so there is also another, I guess, important message for policymakers is that uh, 
countries do not need uh, today to specialize or develop entire industries in order to, to develop or, or increase wages. What, what is needed is actually to join these global value chains and specialize in, uh, in tasks and, uh, and specific components rather than products and industries. So you don't need to produce the entire car. You can just produce pieces that go into, into the cars that are assembled somewhere else, or you can just assemble them. And so that's the first book. Then I prepared also the second is a bit more technical. So I don't know if uh, for those who are interested, it's called uh, Mostly Harmless Econometrics by Angrist and uh, Fischke. And this book is actually uh, about the different uh, methods or different tools that, that we use in, uh, in applied econometrics. And the book is great, you know, it's readable and it provides great examples on you know, how these tools have been used to, to estimate and evaluate policy changes and, uh, and so on. I love the name of the second book because I think it, yeah, as someone who has taken a few econometrics courses and heard professors, they would usually laugh that, you know, if you want to build a model, you can fit an elephant through a model if you use enough variables and that that is a dangerous practice, right? So I love the title as it, as it openly says that it's mostly harmless, it can still be harmful, uh, but Gonzalo recommendations from you. So let me add, uh, let me add one to, to Alan's recommendation and I would like to add uh, the Great Reversal by Thomas Philippon. I don't have the, the issue here in my hand as, as Alan does. Uh, but basically, this is, a, this is a book that was recently uh, launched. Uh, and it's a book about how competition uh, has, has changed and the, the amount of competition that in the U.S. market uh, was prevalent when, when the U.S. became, uh, you know, the, 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 the largest economy in the world uh, is actually... Uh, in reversal, whereas uh, Europe uh, that, that lost ground uh, during, during the 70s and 80s to the US uh, is actually doing much better in terms of competition. And when I was reading the book that is about the US and Europe uh, and competition and what that means for productivity, investment, etc., cetera, uh, I was thinking a lot about Pakistan, actually. And I was thinking about the role that competition has in Pakistan or the lack of competition has in, in preventing productivity upgrading and preventing uh, increased in investment. So it's something that I, I would highly recommend to, to your audience to, to, to look at. It's, it's very readable, it's extremely entertaining and, uh, and, and, and fascinating. No, I will definitely check that out. And I think um, that that should be an interesting read, particularly given that Pakistan has gone from a case study that was talked about much in the 50s, 60s, everyone in Pakistan keeps repeating that to now becoming a basket case. And there are lessons to be learned there. And I frequently tell people that, you know, there's nothing to be pessimistic about. Countries often go through these peaks and troughs. And the question is, how do you come out of that? And how do you realize that you have $60 billion worth of export potential that you're leaving on the table and you can start working on this today and 10, 15 years down the road? You can create millions of well-paying jobs and change your trajectory. So thank you so much for taking out the time to both of you for this wonderful research. I have included the, your thread, Gonzalo, on Twitter that you shared some of the findings as well as some of the pictures and other details that we have so far. Um, and hopefully when the full research comes out, we'll take a, you know, the audience can take a look at it. I've read it. It's fascinating. So thank you for doing the hard work there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.